Well, it's the best part of the day again. Isn't it great that you get one of these every day? Yeah, you wake up and next thing you know, you're having a simultaneous sip and you're thinking, wow, this is great. And it is, every single time. And to make it even greater, all you need is a cup or more glass, a tank of chalcine, a canteen jug of flask, a vessel of any kind. Fill it with your favorite liquid. I like coffee. And join me now for the unparalleled pleasure, the dopamine hit of the day, the thing that makes everything better. It's called the simultaneous sip, and watch how good this is. You ready? Go. Yeah, I don't think I oversold it. That was pretty spectacular. Well, should we start with the good news that nobody seems to be reporting? When I say nobody, I mean nobody except Jake Novak, who uh, put together three facts that I was not aware of, uh, and when you see them together, it's quite a story. And the facts are these. Number one, uh, an Israeli company uh, has built these devices that can extract drinking water from the air. So it'll take the humidity, the moisture in the air, and it very effectively turns it into water, up to 800 liters of fresh water per day. If the devices I saw in the picture are the right devices, it looks like maybe the size of, I don't know, two or three refrigerators put together. So it's not, a, it's not like a factory-sized. It's something you could put on trucks, I think. And uh, they, must have, they must have figured out some way to make this more efficient. Likewise, you may be aware that Israel had offered to Iran, I believe, to help them with desalinization, because Israel's good on desalinization. They need to be, because they need to get water wherever they can. Um, But then there was a third thing that Jake Novak pointed out. You should follow him on Twitter, by the way. Um, That there's another Israeli company that developed a drip irrigation system for growing rice so you don't have to flood the rice paddies. So so those are the three things. Desalinization, taking water directly from the air in some new efficient way, better than before, I guess. And then a way to do agriculture with way less water, some kind of a drip irrigation system. So you take those three, three things collectively, and uh, that's a pretty big deal. You know, you you don't see them all at the same time, so you sort of lose sight of the fact that while we were thinking about other things, Israel used technology, basically, in science to solve one of the biggest problems in the world, that we might run out of fresh water. Now think about um, your 80-year projections for climate change. What is one of the base assumptions of, of the the assumption that climate change will be devastating in the future. Well, the problem is that things that are working now will break, such as people who have access to water might have droughts in the future, and other people might have floods. And I've been saying forever that you can't do that kind of an 80-year projection because there would be too many inventions and surprises along the way. You can't predict that stuff. Well, here's one. In, in what part of the 80-year projection of you know, water needs and, and climate change and all that, where did they calculate that Israel would pioneer you know, 
or, or improve three major uses of water uh, and actually create it out of the sky more efficiently. So that's all good news. I'll put that out there. I noticed today that uh, one, of the, one of the trending things on Twitter most of the morning was the phrase, Dementia Joe. So, of course, I clicked on it to see what that was all about. And one of the things I noticed is that uh, I guess a number of conservatives are using it uh, to refer to Joe and his speech, etc. But Democrats really don't like this hashtag, which is partly why it was trending, because they were, they were fighting against it so much it just made it true. But um, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Why is it that of all the things that anybody can say about Biden, this one, you can tell by the comments, it sort of, it sort of hit a nerve somehow, whereas normal political speech doesn't always hit a nerve. It's just more routine. And I feel as if there's a thing happening now. <laughs> and it's happening in slow motion, and it's hilarious because we can't really talk about it exactly. And it goes like this. All of the people who supported Biden for president had to mentally do something to be okay with the fact that, quite obviously, he wasn't as sharp as he used to be. Now, I imagine that the way they dealt with it is either to just not think about it, because all they cared about is getting rid of Trump, or they, they minimized it in their minds to the point of, well, yeah, okay, he's, he's older, but it's not that big a deal. But the predictable, the predictable arc of things is that it's just going to get more and more obvious. <laughs> 51 days without a press conference? 51 days without a press conference? It's kind of obvious now. And then you see all the, the gaff clips, etc. So I feel as if the Democrats are feeling exposed, meaning that um, it's going to look like everything that conservatives said about Joe Biden's mental capacity is not just true, but it's really, really obviously true, and it matters. How are they going to deal with that? How does anybody deal with being wrong? Well, most of us do it the same way. We, we get triggered into cognitive dissonance, and then we somehow explain it like it wasn't wrong, even if it was. So uh, I'll just note that Dementia Joe seems to really get under their, their skin, in case you want to use that. Now, the uh, Democrats are trying to respond with their own hashtag, which is getting a lot of use, damn straight. And a uh, number of tweets say stuff like, we finally got a real president, damn straight. So, I don't know. I think damn straight is in the category of no malarkey. It's like people coming up with slogans who are not good at coming up with slogans. Damn straight. Uh, how, does that, how does that hit you? It just feels a little cringy, doesn't it? Yeah, okay. If somebody was actually typing cringe as, as I said it. Uh, it's a little bit cringy. Compare that to Make America Great Again. Now, I know people had their problems with it, thinking it was some kind of a racial thing. But in terms of coming up with a slogan 
or you know a branding. When you see, when you start to see people who are not good at it, do it directly after you've watched Trump be really, really good at it, like as good, maybe better than anybody's ever been, right? If you count all his nicknames, you know everything from low energy to you know Lion Ted to, you know, if you count all of that. Trump was basically hitting home runs every time he got up to bat. You know, drain the swamp. Almost everything that Trump tried to turn into a a saying or a logo or a statement worked. Everything from fake news, you name it. He turned everything he wanted to turn into a, you know, into a thing. He turned it into a thing. But then you watch people who are not good at it. Damn straight. Damn straight. (laughs) <laughs> it trended today, but I don't think it's going to turn into anything. It feels a little like no malarkey, if you know what I mean. People who don't know how to do this trying to do it. Uh, this morning, uh, Brian Stelter uh, tweeted, he showed a screen <laughs> screenshot that I've been laughing about for a while. So apparently when Biden was giving his speech, Fox News ran a chyron, the, the words that go at the bottom of the screen there. They ran a chyron that said... Uh, <laughs> and, and what's funny about this is that this is a news channel, and uh, the, the, uh, the amount of uh, you know, partisanship, uh, sometimes it crosses that line where you just have to laugh. It's just hilarious. So here... <laughs> Here's Fox News' label for Biden's speech while he's talking. So while he's talking below it, it says, low bar, colon, Biden survives short scripted speech. <laughs> survives? <laughs> what kind of news is that? He survives it. <laughs> because because it, it gives you the impression, especially because it's a, you know, allegedly a news channel, <laughs> It gives you the impression that there was some <laughs> that there was some chance he would die right in front of you, <laughs> or that his career would be over because you know because he would be so undependable that he would just spout out something crazy and it would be it would be over. <laughs> now let me say, <laughs> if CNN had done a Chiron as ridiculous as this one. I would have I would have also called it out, right? So this this works both ways, but I have to give Fox News credit because theirs is pretty funny. <laughs> I think if it's funny, you get a little extra a little extra forgiveness, right? And I feel like that Fox News accomplished that. So whoever whoever it is, I know there's some Fox News producer watching this right now, but. Uh, <laughs> Whoever it is who was in charge of that Chiron, good job <laughs> from an entertainment perspective. It was a good job. So here's the second part of that story. So after I saw this, uh, and it was you know Brian Stelter from CNN talking about Fox News and how they cover stuff, I tweeted that uh, 20% of all news involves people in the news business criticizing each other. Now, when I said 20%, that wasn't to be taken as an actual estimate, right? It's just that it seems like they spend a lot of time criticizing the other channel. If you turn on Fox News, they're talking about CNN. You turn on CNN, they're talking about Fox News. And so uh, 
So, so I tweeted 20% of it is just that. And within a few minutes, Brian Stelter tweeted back uh, at me, and he said, uh, no, it does not. Or, I don't know, he tweeted, not necessarily at me. Uh, and, and here's the thing. When I'm using social media, I forget sometimes, especially if it's somebody famous who's you know like Brian Stelter or somebody you know, I forget that they actually read it. Like somehow, somehow my brain can't can't handle the fact that I'm typing, you know, using a tool, which of course the whole point of it is people are reading it, and I still can't I can't get it in my head that when I type a response to somebody famous, they'll actually read it. It still blows me away, and so when he when he tweeted back, I was thinking, oh, we actually read that. <laughs> And and, um, and I I understand when I do it why people are are so mean and ugly to me. Because every now and then I'll respond back to some troll who just said something awful about me. And and sometimes they'll say something like, whoa, whoa, I didn't think you'd read it. (laughs) So uh, just remember, there are real people reading this stuff. Uh, Jack Posobiec reports that he's hearing from his uh, multiple insider sources at the White House that uh, Kamala Harris is getting the full, uh, the PDB, what is that, daily, the, um, it's the briefing. What does the PD stand for? Daily briefing, presidential daily briefing I'm going to go with. Let's, let's say that. I'm going to say presidential daily briefing. But uh, Kamala Harris is getting the full full one, uh, which even we think that even Biden didn't get that when he was vice president. Now, getting back to my earlier comments about how Democrats are going to have to come to terms with the fact that they elected somebody who quite clearly is not medically fully available, if you know what I mean. And every time there's this little bit of, you know, the cats on the roof, it seems like it's going forever, isn't it? Like, how long have we seen these cats on the roof? Like, well, it's a little bit of a hint that they're not expecting him to last that long. Even Biden says stuff like he's not going to run for a second term, etc. So it's just funny. Every, every time you see another, another piece of evidence that it's clearly the plan to put her in place, uh, you just got to wonder what they're thinking. So... I hear that comedians are having a hard time mocking Biden because they don't have anything to grab onto. You know, Trump was easy. He had just a million targets that you could shoot at. But Biden is super boring. And if you were to ask people what's the one sort of, uh, I don't know, personality thing that stands out or, or what do you think of when you think of Joe Biden, what's the, what's the top thing that comes to mind? It's medical. It's medical, right? His, his mental capacity. And it's not really super cool to make humor about people's medical conditions. Now, I would think a president's a little bit of an exception to that because sometimes you have to mock things to get them fixed. And maybe having a president who's not quite all there needs to get fixed. So he's a special case. But 
Isn't it interesting that he's so bland, the only thing you could mock, you don't because it's real? If Don't you think that they would be mocking Biden uh, if they thought that wasn't real? Don't you think they'd be, there would be more people, on the, even on the left, who would take a run at it? It's like, oh, he's dumb. Ha, 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 ha. You know, ha, 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 he's not as fast as he used to be. Ha, 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 he does some gaffes. But they don't really do that, do they? <laughs> they don't really do that. Somebody says they mocked uh, Reagan. Um, was Reagan ever this bad? You know, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I think you could certainly detect there was something going on with Reagan. I don't think Reagan was ever like this, was he? Maybe I just don't remember it clearly. All right, uh, so I watched, let's talk about Biden's speech. Uh, I might surprise you by saying I thought it was pretty good. Pretty good. If I'm, if I'm going to be objective, which is the only value I have to you, is trying to be unbiased if I can, I thought his speech was pretty solid meaning that what he was trying to do was project empathy, and he gave us some dates, which I wanted. I wanted to hear a date when he thinks he can get the vaccinations May 1st. Everybody should have access to it. It's good. Um, yeah, I'm seeing your comments about whether Reagan was as bad. A little bit of a disagreement about whether he was, he was as bad. Some say yes, some say no. So I, I don't have a strong memory of that at this point. But uh, so I'm going to give uh, Biden a, you know, a solid, a solid mark. It was not exciting. I literally started falling asleep toward the end. It, it dragged on. It was a little too long. You know, he's not like a great deliverer of anything. But for what the country needed, it was pretty solid. Good information. Fairly specific. Now, the, of course, the thing that everybody's mocking uh, is the... Uh, <laughs> and I, I think everyone who watched this had some kind of similar feeling to it. When he was saying that by 4th of July, he's hoping that people can get together for their 4th of July barbecues and whatnot, and then he slipped in, but not large groups. And I'm sitting here thinking, what did you just say? And, and then he sort of, I think he clarified it again, you know, that you'd be able to have Fourth of July, but not in a large get-together. To which I and something like 300-plus million Americans, or I don't know, whatever, tens of millions were watching the speech, simultaneously said to themselves, see, see if this happened in your head. Did you simultaneously, all over the country, say to yourself, Fuck you. Fuck you. Here's what's going to happen on July 4th. I and every one of you are going to make your own fucking mind up about what you're going to do. And the government's instructions to you by July 4th, because by then it's, it's a different situation, we hope, by July 4th, it's not the government's decision. And even their suggestion will be taken as a suggestion, all right? By July, people are going to do any fucking thing they want. And I don't think there's any, any way around that. Now, a lot of people will want to play it safe. A lot of people will want to do what the government suggests because they want to. That's fine. But 
there was something about the way he presented it that carried with it a whiff of presumption that the government can tell you how to uh, celebrate the 4th of July in your own fucking backyard. And that didn't go down well, did it? (laughs) How'd that feel? Didn't feel good. Didn't feel good. And, And I've been quite supportive of the government having some, you know, a, a big hand in the pandemic. I think sometimes the government needs to be the, the one with a big hand or a big footprint, I guess. Uh, but that would be too far, right? There's a point where everybody says it's too far, and, and I think Biden reached that. So that's not the biggest problem in the world. The, the other thing about his speech is that there was a lot of darkness and gloom, and it was kind of long and boring and low energy. But... Uh, it got the job done. Um, here's a question I have for you. If you believe that Biden is doing a good job with pandemic management, and I would say he is. Does anybody disagree with that? Is there any disagreement that Biden is, uh, the administration, is doing a solid job with the... Uh, I, I, I would fault him with school openings. He should put more pressure on the teachers' unions. That's a big deal. But I feel like I feel like it's you know happening, like people are going back to school already. Vaccinations are looking pretty solid. Messaging looks pretty good. I think it's solid. But here's the question: What is it that Biden has done that the Trump administration would not have, you know, predictably done? So, for example, under under Biden, the rate of vaccinations is way up. Well, don't you think that would have happened under Trump as well? Because we know that however it starts, it's going to be slow compared to you know, how quickly it will ramp up. So I don't see any reason that we should assume Biden did a better job. I don't see any evidence for that. And in fact, um, Trump might have put more pressure on teachers' unions, although that could have been counterproductive. You could make an argument that if Trump had gone harder at teachers' unions, they would have just hardened their, their stand against him. So it's hard to predict. But I don't think there's any reason to think Biden did a better job than Trump would have if he had been in office. Um, I tweeted yesterday something that I knew would get, uh, get people angry or bothered, but there wouldn't be a reason, which is my favorite kind of tweet, where people would feel like they should be offended on behalf of somebody else, they're not sure who, and they're not sure exactly why. But they're definitely offended if they could only figure out why. Here was my tweet. Um, I, I said that uh, if I were the uh, if I were the attorney defending uh, Derek Chauvin, the uh, officer who was charged with uh, now I guess second or third degree murder, one of those murders, I would say that I would deliver my closing argument laying on the ground, if I were the lawyer, laying on the ground, and I would have my client put his knee on my neck, much the way he did with George Floyd, and for the entire nine minutes, I would time it so it was the same amount of time as, as uh, Floyd was held down. As the lawyer, I would just speak normally, and I would just have the, you know, I'd be on the ground with the, the officer's now, not officer, but ex-officer's knee on my neck, and I would say, all right, we've presented all the evidence, and as you can see, you know, there's uh, plenty of uh, reasonable doubt. 
the main reason that you uh, and the world was so concerned is that the visual of this is just deeply disturbing. But, as you can see, the reason that this is a legal hold and it's trained and the officers are trained this way is that if you do it right, it doesn't put much pressure on the neck. And as you can see, I'm delivering my closing arguments uh, completely uh, without any air restricted, and yet I can't move. I can't get up. Can't get up. Now, uh, do you think people complained about that tweet? Oh, yeah. (laughs) You always get this guy. Do you know who this guy is? He's the, he's the guy. It's usually a guy. It's usually a guy, right? Uh, could be a woman. I don't want to be sexist, but it's usually a guy who comes in and says something like this. A man died. You're laughing, and a man died. This is not a joke. You always need that guy, right? The guy to remind us that there was a tragedy. Is there anything that is more well understood than whatever, the, whatever that was? It was a tragedy. Is there anybody who doesn't know that? And here's the second part. It wasn't a joke. If you laughed on it, if you laughed at it, well, that's sort of on you. <laughs> Because it wasn't written as a joke. It was written as a persuasion. Now, of course I don't assume that the lawyer would do anything like that. In order to do that, you would need a certain kind of personality. Let's say Johnny Cochran. If Johnny Cochran, Cochran were alive and he heard that idea, <laughs> what do you think? If Johnny Cochran heard that idea and he were the defense attorney, just lay in the ground, put the knee on you, and do your closing argument just like that, he would at least consider it. Now, he might say, no, that's too far or whatever, because you know, uh, clearly he was the highest level of defense attorney, so he might say that's a bad idea for good reasons. But I think he'd at least consider it. I think he'd consider it. I, I feel as if he would give it a good... A thought. And here's the thing. There is nothing disrespectful about that. Nothing. It's not even a little bit disrespectful. It's persuasive. I mean, if it worked, right? Now, here I'm making a big assumption that I think is fair, which is that if somebody has their, is holding you down with that knee hold on your neck, they probably have a lot of leeway in terms of how painful or damaging that is. And I don't think you can tell just by looking at it on a video. I don't think you can tell. So it would, be a, it would be, I don't know how they could possibly convict. Let me ask you this. If you saw that closing argument and you watched it for nine minutes and you watched the lawyer talk normally, could you convict? Because that, that removes all the reasonable doubt. I mean, it's just gone at that point. <clears throat> I would have done it. All right. There's a uh, study out of Israel, (coughs) Israel's in the news a lot, that uh, they think aspirin may protect against COVID. They thought, you know, there's some evidence it does. Um, uh, Andres Backhaus commented on that to point out it's a low-quality study, and uh, I wouldn't start taking aspirin. 
Because number one, you know, I, I usually tell you don't get your medical advice from me, but I'm actually going to give you medical advice right now. Don't start taking aspirin unless you talk to your doctor. I feel that's safe, right? It feels like that's safe medical advice. Um, I used to take a baby aspirin every day because for, I don't know, decades, I believe that the science said that it would protect you against uh, strokes or heart attacks or something. And so I'd take my little baby aspirin every single day. The new science, or at least the latest thinking, is there's no indication whatsoever that that aspirin is going to protect you from any of that stuff. And it might have some negative effects, because aspirin is not exactly harmless. Um, So I wouldn't trust anything about an aspirin study, just in general, but not that one. Here's an interesting thing to watch. I've been asking the question, who is the, the conservative voice now? Because Trump himself is sort of, uh, at the moment, a little bit off the stage. Coincidentally, uh, Rush Limbaugh passed. You would think of him as maybe the dominant voice in conservative politics. So now the, the two most dominant voices are out of the game. And I was watching as uh, um, Tucker Carlson's show came on immediately after the Biden speech, and there's, there's an interesting phenomenon you have to experience, and maybe you did, you probably did, which is you watch the event yourself, so you're watching the Biden speech or any, any other event, and then you're forming an opinion. And you're thinking, oh, I think this about it or that about it. And then you see somebody like Tucker Carlson um, give you a very strong opinion and, and a take, if you will. How quickly does your sort of generic forming opinion start to match identically to Tucker Carlson's opinion? Because it's the first thing you heard while you were still trying to form your opinion. And he is so certain when he speaks, it's one of the things he does well, he speaks with a kind of certainty that is very persuasive, I felt, you know, I've told you before that we don't make up our own opinions on politics. You think you do, but you don't. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that's 100% true, but it's close enough to 100% true that you could treat it that way. Meaning that whether you're on the left or the right, if you were to look at your political opinion on any topic, you will be amazed and surprised that it matches whoever you watch on TV the most. Most of the time. It just matches who you watch on TV. And it's because your opinion was assigned to you. The people who are good at expressing things, they express an opinion and then you just adopt it. It's like, oh, that's a good way to think about it. That's my opinion now. But watching Tucker Carlson assign opinions to Fox News viewers in real time was sort of mind-blowing. And I watched that happen last night because I, I wanted to see... I was sort of monitoring my own opinion to see when it got formed. To, yeah, because I was, I was feeling, oh, that's a sort of a boring, good Biden speech. Yeah. He didn't hurt anybody, didn't hurt himself, got the job done. And then as soon as I turn on Tucker, it's a, it's, a, yeah, it's a dumpster fire, and what he said about Fourth of July is crazy. Yeah, I agree with him, of course, on the Fourth of July stuff. Um, but... The other thing is that, as somebody's saying in the comments, 
part of what makes Tucker so powerful is not just that other voices got decreased, which is a big deal, but that he's really good. <laughs> like, really, really good at his job. And he seems to be getting better. And at, at, at his current age, you know, I'm not sure you'd expect his quality of production to just keep getting better, but it is right in front of your eyes. I, I think he's unquestionably at his highest level of uh, quality as well as um, importance, you know, his impact on the country. So I feel as if he, he just became the guy. I feel as if, you know, if you've been looking for who's the, the voice of the conservatives, it feels like it's him. It feels like it. Now, not to say there aren't other voices, but he does seem to have emerged as the, the prime voice. Um, over in Portland, I guess there have been nightly protests and stuff for almost a year now. Um, and there, and I read that some Portland business owners are boarding up their businesses because they're expecting more trouble from everything from the George Floyd stuff to who knows what. And I thought to myself, there are still businesses in Portland? Why would you stay in Portland if, if there were protests for a year? I don't know. It seems like that would be long enough to make other plans. But it's hard to move a business, I know. But I can't believe there are any businesses left. Um, here's another compliment to the Biden administration. You didn't see this coming. Pete Buttigieg, as the transportation secretary, is a really good choice. <laughs> He's a really good choice. I don't know if you, you remember, but Buttigieg's background is uh, as a business consultant. I mean, that was his first role. And you don't get the... I th- was it Bain? I think you worked for But you don't get that kind of a job unless you're just crackling smart and you just came out of Harvard, usually, uh, as he did. But the, the thing that makes this perfect is that it's a purely... Um, it's an analytical job. Oh, McKinsey, somebody's saying it was McKinsey. That's right. So he was a McKinsey consultant. But he has exactly the right skill set, exactly the right skill set for uh, transportation and infrastructure because those are things that people sort of are more likely to agree on, right? We're, we're a little bit closer on the need for an infrastructure package than we are for probably almost anything else. He's perfect. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to give the Biden administration a, an A-plus on that appointment. We'll see if he delivers, right? He still has to deliver. But that's a perfect fit of, of training and competence with job. Um, you heard the AstraZeneca's vaccination. Some people thought it might cause blood clots. But now they've looked at the data and they say, nope, no blood clots. So that story about the vaccinations being a problem is fake news, as far as we know. Um, There's still a lot of concern that people will not get the vaccinations because they're afraid of it, or uh, mostly they're afraid of it. And I'm going to predict that in the end that won't be a problem. My uh, prediction slash observation is that um, because supply is limited, that people's willingness to get the shot is going to match the supply all the way to the end. Meaning that 
um, you'll get enough people vaccinated to get to wherever we need to get. People like me are quietly saying they're skeptical until the last minute. You should stay skeptical until you have a chance to get the shot (laughs) and then take all the information that you have up to that point and make your decision. But you don't need to make a decision until the shot's available. Something tells me that a lot of the people who are sort of talking about not getting the shot, when they really, really think it through, and when they watch how many people have gotten the shot, and it doesn't, they haven't heard that many stories of bad outcomes, I feel as if um, a lot of people are going to get the shot. I think we'll get as many as we need. I think we'll be fine there. Um, here's my math question for you. And I asked this this morning. Uh, I got a number of answers, and I'm still not sure of my opinion on it. So help me form an opinion on it. It goes like this. If we had a normal virus that uh, affected everybody about the same way, every age group, then we're told that getting to 60 70% herd immunity with vaccinations or prior infections, that getting there would be enough to stop the, stop the spread. But what if you've got a weird virus that has a special characteristic that attacks, let's say, 20% of the population aggressively and 80% of the population hardly bothers them at all? What happens if you can vaccinate almost all of that 20%? Well, it won't stop the infection from spreading through the other 80%, of course. And that other 80%, if they came in contact with the few people who didn't have it yet in, that, in the high-risk uh, group, then those people could get it and die. So, but here's the question. I'm just trying to think the, the, the logical math of it through. Uh, I do understand this is something uh, Andres Backhouse said this morning on Twitter, that the rate of infection where it's been studied seems to be fairly similar with every age group. I didn't know that until this morning. So you can get infected at every age group, which suggests that my idea doesn't make sense. That if, if everybody's getting infected, it's at least in that one sense, it's like every other virus. It's just the outcomes are different, not the infection rate. So... But I haven't given up yet. I feel as if, just to help me think this through, because I, I really, uh, too many variables here to quite grasp it. But my, my uh, gut level uh, statistical intuition, which is very unreliable, <laughs> tells me that if you vaccinate, let's say, 80% of the high-risk people, they tend to hang out with themselves don't they? Senior citizens are far more likely to have you know, extended uh, contact with other senior citizens. They do have family contacts, etc. But And then kids, mostly hanging around with kids. And under that scenario, couldn't you uh, not have herd immunity in the classic sense where the virus just stops, but in a functional sense, where once you've got the high-risk people done and the low-risk people are still getting infected, but you don't care because they're not getting any bad outcomes, 
don't you sort of reach something that's like a virtual herd effect, except plenty of people are still getting infected. It's just they're not dying. So when we talk about herd immunity from a regular virus, we're talking about the virus just stopping. It just can't spread. It just stops. But maybe when we talk about herd immunity for this one, what we should really be talking about is bringing the rate of risk down to whatever is a baseline normal risk of life. And I feel like we're going to hit that really soon. That's, that's my uh, statistical slash math intuition that we're going to hit it really soon, like way before May. I'm thinking, I'm thinking April uh, hospitalizations will be almost nothing. Um, but the spread will still be widespread because the kids will still be giving it to kids, etc. Won't, we won't know about it. So I am not convinced that I'm right there. And I'll, let me make another point about your skill stacks. When I, when I advise you to add uh, additional talents to what you already have to make your stack of talents, your talent stack, as I like to say, is special. Statistics is one of those things you should have on there. Now, I've taken a course in statistics in, in college, but it was a million years ago. I don't remember a lot of the math. But you, you can develop, let's say, a statistical intuition about things. You can get to the point where you could look at, say, this aspirin study and say, oh, the number of people studied was small. The way they studied it is not as, as good statistically. So you would just have an intuition that you shouldn't trust it necessarily. And... I think that's a really good thing to develop, and you don't need to do all the math to do it. Just spend enough time looking at the illusions of statistics, the things that you thought would be true, but turned out, if you do the math, they're not true. Every time you're fooled by statistics, make a little note. Say, oh, yeah, that's one of those situations where it looks like it could be the case, but if you do the math, it's opposite. So... Develop, try to develop some kind of like intuition about where things are credible and where they're not, uh, independent of having the math. Uh, here's my most controversial uh, idea of the day. We know that China is sending fentanyl to the cartels, and the cartels are packaging it up in, in, other, in drugs that look like other kinds of drugs, such as fake Xanax. Shipping it to the United States and 50 to 70,000 Americans per year are dying from this. Uh, we believe that China is pursuing this you know, total war idea where it is completely intentional and they could obviously stop it because we've actually told them the name of the person in China who's sending the fentanyl. We know the name. It's this guy. China, of course, can find that guy. Right? So there's no question about those two facts. We've told them who it is, who's the, you know, the fentanyl kingpin in China. China knows where he is. They could stop him. Does anybody doubt that they could stop that guy? No, of course not. So we have to assume it's intentional and that they are killing fifty to 70,000 Americans per year intentionally as a plan. Now, that's war isn't it? But 
given the nature of all the obstacles and variables in the world, we can't just sort of attack China militarily. We just do this weird thing where we demand that they stop and then they just don't. Because they don't have to. Apparently there's no penalty. So to me it seems that Mexico and the cartels are a combined allied military force in a war with the United States. Now, we can't attack China because they have nukes and stuff, but we can certainly attack their ally who holds territory. And their allies hold the the border territory. If you didn't know this, the cartels actually are the government on the border. Literally, they're the government. The actual government wouldn't even be... They would be too afraid to even go there because they would kill the actual government. They're just not allowed. So for all practical uh, purposes, Mexico is not even on our border. We don't have a Mexican border, but I'd like one. Let's see if we can get one. (laughs) So the way to get a Mexican border for the first time is to get rid of this small... uh, let's say, unlabeled country owned by the cartels. Different cartels, but they have different parts of it, right? And I think that we should at least consider um, annexing that territory that Mexico doesn't control. Now, you would say to yourself, whoa, 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 you've gone way too far. The government of Mexico is never going to allow you to annex part of that territory, to which I say... Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if Mexico surged their uh, government military into that area to protect it from the United States annexing it? That'd be fine. Then we don't have to annex it. Because if the Mexican military tried to defend it, they would move their military into that zone, and that's all we wanted in the first place. We want Mexico to be on our border. So if Mexico wants to be on our border, we'll help. But of course, the, the real Mexican government is afraid of the cartel, as they should be, so they, they can't really do that. So what would they do if we just annexed it, just took it, and said, we're not taking it from Mexico. Mexico doesn't own it. And here's the best part. If Mexico wants it back, they can have it. just ask. All you have to do is control it. Just move your military in, control the border, we'll give it right back to you. You can have it back. But if you don't want to do that, it's not Mexico and it's not the United States, it's China. And I don't want a border with China. And right now we have one. They happen to be the cartel working with China, but for all practical purposes... We just got ourselves a border with China. And they are invading and attacking over the border. So I would treat it like a Chinese military exercise. And when Mexico complains, you say, oh, I hear you what you're saying, but it's not really about us. This isn't about the United States and Mexico. We don't have any complaints with Mexico at all. Not the Mexican government. We have a complaint with China who is working with this cartel, these cartels who own this territory, this has nothing to do with you. But if you would like it to be about you, we would like that too. You could join us. But until then, 
It's, it's war with China, and we'll just treat it that way. <laughs> In the comments, somebody says, this idea is so crazy it could work. Let me tell you about uh, so crazy it could work. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The, the idea is not so much that you would actually annex it, but you would change the frame. You would reframe the situation from uh, an immigration problem, a drug problem, a crime problem, because that's not getting us anywhere, is it? The way we, cur- we currently frame and think about the border is giving us nothing but worse problems. If you reframe how you think about it, that opens up options. You don't necessarily know where that ends up. It could end up with Mexico just defending their own border better. That'd be fine. But the reframe just gets you out of the broken and bankrupt uh, way of thinking. The bankrupt way of thinking is that we have a crime immigration problem at the border. That's just not what's going on. What's going on is that China is attacking the United States right now, successfully. And we're not defending against an attack by China. Mexico, you're just not part of the question. I wish you were. Honestly, I wish you were part of the question. But you're not. The cartels are. All right. um, Here's uh, the most... uh, This will just make your head spin for a while. I believe there's another sexual category. And I'm just going to put this out there, and then you won't, you won't accept this at first. But wait till you look into it. Okay? Some of you will be able to go home immediately and ask somebody for confirmation. Most of you won't. But watch, watch what happens when you do. If you said to a, uh, let's say, a teenage girl in the United States in 2021, so it's just a, your average teenage girl, and you say to that teenage girl, what is your, uh, your orientation? They'll tell you. They'll say, uh, I'm either straight or I'm gay or, um, uh, or I'm bi. And they'll, and they'll tell you just right out. So at least in today's world, uh, I don't see at least nothing like it used to be in terms of anybody saying that they're gay or they're lesbian or anything else. So the first thing that would be eye-opening is that a teenager today is far more likely to just you know, be completely open about what their sexuality is. Here's the shocking part. Ask a, uh, ask a girl who identifies as heterosexual, not bisexual. They have to identify as heterosexual and then ask this question. Would you ever marry a woman? There was a time, if you asked somebody who identified as heterosexual, would you ever marry somebody of the same gender, they would have said, well, no, what do you think heterosexual means? That's the whole point of heterosexual is, no, I'm, I'm interested in the other gender. Not today. <laughs> if, you, if you ask a teenage girl today, would, are you heterosexual? She says, yes, totally heterosexual. I'm not bi at all. But would you marry a woman if you fell in love? They will say yes. And won't even blink at it. 
It's, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's neither good nor bad. I'm not putting any kind of judgment on it. It's just a, uh, an evolution that's uh, sort of fascinating to watch. Um, now, I don't think that men would answer the same. I don't think a teenage boy who identified as heterosexual, if you asked, would you ever marry another man, probably would say no, you know, in 2021 still. Probably. Not everyone, but more, more often. Uh, somebody's asking the question, what would happen if you asked, a, let's say, a teenage white girl if she would marry a black person? I've, I've heard teenagers discussing that very question, and 100% of them said yes. And there were more people who say they prefer it. <laughs> in fact, several said they prefer it, but I've never heard anybody in, uh, in the modern era say that they wouldn't. I haven't heard it. So I don't think there's anybody, at least maybe this is a California thing, so it could be really different where you live. California tends to be five to ten years ahead of some of these things. Um, Somebody says, would you stay with a spouse who changes uh, their gender? (laughs) I I think it depends. It depends, right? There's There's no one answer to that. That would depend on the two people. Uh, when are you in the company of teenagers? Well, I don't hang with teenagers, but uh, let's say if you have a, f- uh, a family situation, you're exposed to them whether you like it or not. So the, the answer is through family connections. Um, but I'm not talking about anybody in my family. I'm talking about a general statement. If you ask a a personal question to a group, you'll get a peer answer. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, Yeah, I'm just looking at your comments. Okay, well, I didn't know if that would be surprising to many of you or not. It's a sign of the times. Probably a good one. Good sign of the times. Because the teens teens are definitely woke. (laughs) There's no doubt about that. And... uh, That's not all bad. All right. That's all for now, and I'll talk to you later. All right. Um, Your teens are not woke. (laughs) All right. That's all for now. I will uh, talk to you tomorrow, too.